Welcome, welcome, welcome. Man, part two. You enjoyed part one, right? I did. This is part two. I don't need to say too much. SpeechDevelopmentRecords.com. I've already plugged you for that. I'm not going to push hard on the merch. I'm going to push you on this. In fact, instead, I'm going to push you towards Tom's record. Go and buy his new record. I'm going to push you hard towards that instead. Um, yeah, this had to be a two-parter. Um, it was amazing. The, the, two of the most popular podcasts we've had are the Eddie Temple Morris episode and the Gail Porter episode because we got open and honest and dark. And in this one, actually, there was a couple of things I considered asking to have edited out. Um, I didn't in the end. But I send these over to Wargy, who does an amazing job of mastering them. And there was a couple of things I said that I kind of felt that played on my mind afterwards because I felt they were a bit too honest or, or open or giving too much to you people. <laughs> but um, I decided against it because I decided that's the nature of the podcast. And the fact is, I've had other people come on here and be insanely open. Um, so... It'd be wrong of me to do anything otherwise. Anyway, let's get into this. This is part two of the Tom Robinson episode, episode 64 of the Distraction Pieces podcast. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. Well, let's continue with part two now. So, yeah, we've we've I mean we've covered so much in the first half, and we were just at the point of essentially of the bands splitting. Um, and again, that's the, the these things with personal clashes or differences happen. How was it for you, and what was your your mindset then? What were you going to do? You, do you start a new band? It's tough when the band that split is the Tom Robinson band. And again, you'd, you'd said the mistake of the name. It's tough when the band that split is you, because then what do you do? Do you start a new band? Do you perform as, as Tom Robinson and not the band? Or, you know, it's a tough one. I'd painted myself into a corner there, yeah. to be honest. But also, you, you must know this yourself, that you just lose perspective of what is real, what is true. Um, yeah. The whole life that you've lived up to that point has vanished forever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're never going to be the same person or in the same circumstances. So we'd signed to EMI Records at a time when we had Pink Floyd's manager looking after us, negotiating deals. I was suddenly getting like 20,000 quid into the bank account. And in 1978, that was a ridiculous amount yeah. of money you know yeah, I, sure. I had no idea what money was worth anymore i'd been signing on up up until 2468 got into the charts yeah. and my one treat was a mcdonald's small hamburger once a week when i went to sign on because that's all i could afford yeah. over and above basic rent and and you know rice so, yeah, noodles big changes big changes and suddenly you know a friend would say can you lend us a thousand quid yeah all right get out a checkbook and write them a check it's, all, it's also interesting because you don't learn i mean i was quite lucky because i didn't have any break in any of this until about 25, 26, and I felt grown up enough to go, right. Because, again, the the, the, the the main thing that no one tells you is this isn't the kind of job that's a sturdy long-term career. So every time I've had a year where I've made a ton of money, I've been like, wow, we're making loads of money. It's been that realisation of 
is this a load of money if it's three years wages or if it's four years wages because if i now need some time off like as i'm doing at the moment if i need some time off to write new material to to not be touring to to, to refine everything that's time off from earning m- m- money and putting money in the bank and it's easy to have that oh i'm bringing money in i'll i'll, I'll lend all my mates some money i'll do this i'll do that what happens in in a year or two when that as 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 you experience when that potentially all goes out the window Exactly. And then your personal relationships also kind of tend to become dodgy. Yeah. Because after we'd had the first hit, I went back to the gay pub in North London where I used to go and hang out every Friday night. There was a Gay Liberation Front disco there. Yeah. And so I thought I'd go back and touch base with my old roots. Yeah. Um, and when I walked in, like, People were almost evenly divided. There were people who had never had much time for me. Were going, oh, I always knew you make it lovely to see you, Tom. Yeah, Can yeah. I buy you a drink? Yeah, great yeah, stuff, yeah. man. Oh, oh, you're so great. Yeah. And others were going, oh, so we've come back slumming, have we now? Yeah, you know, yeah, to yeah, yeah. You know, see how, how how the other half live. Yeah. You know, you think you're so great. Who do you think you are walking in here? You yeah. expecting? Are you expecting us all to ask for your autograph yeah, now? Yeah. And so. I hadn't changed yeah. yet. Right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, yeah, eventually yeah. do, but I hadn't changed. I was the same person walking in, but the reactions it were all completely. other people's perceptions yeah. had uh, had altered. It's and that thing. Is it's the it's 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 similar to the thing I feel. I feel the whole difficult second album thing is a myth. I think the fact is, your first album, n- no one has to listen to it. The people who listen to it because they've chosen to, whereas your, your, your second one, you've often got a name. Therefore, people who wouldn't have listened to having to review it, having to be involved. And it's a similar thing there. You'd been in that pub previously. No one had to have an opinion on you, mm-hmm. whereas now everyone has to. And some of them aren't going to be good as, as some of them are, but they need to have an opinion of, on you because things have changed. Yeah. You know, whereas before, as I said, you could just be the people who know you or choose to, to know you are the only ones that have to have to care about about your appearance and, and, there and the other thing that i touched on earlier which is you know spending all that time replying to fan mail yeah. instead of writing bloody songs yeah you know you're a songwriter you have to write songs yeah. was do, do you think any part of that was down to your 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 previously um realized loneliness um that need to 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 be liked to to respond to every every letter because I don't want them to think I'm a, a a nasty person and in in reality it's, as you said they probably wouldn't have or probably weren't expecting a response but that almost over need to to make everyone go oh isn't he nice isn't isn't he isn't he a nice a nice boy um, being too eager to please yeah yeah rather than that right here's what my actual job is but at the end of the day again the more people that do know of you the less you can make sure everyone knows you properly or loves you or whatever else. You're, 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 you're broadening that, that, that fan base there. Yeah. I mean, bizarrely, I'd, I'd hoped to... I'd had this chronic determination to become famous because I wanted to be lovable and I wanted to, quite frankly, get laid. Yeah. You yeah. know, I had no confidence in the London cruising scene whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I kind of hoped that people would find me more attractive if I had been on a stage uh, yeah. and was poncing about with a guitar. Yeah. So, yes, I did get more laid, but I never knew who it was they thought they were sleeping with. Yeah. Because yeah. you 
you knew that somebody was going to go back. I just had him. Yeah. You know, it was just for a brag or a dare. Yeah. They didn't give a toss about me. No. And the very best experience from that whole late 70s thing I can remember was uh, I went back to my stay with my parents up um, in County Durham where we were, the family there were. And I went out to a nightclub in Newcastle and um, there was this really attractive boy in his late teens, 19, 20, something like that, uh, dancing on his own on the dance floor. And I went and danced with him and we, we, got, we hit it off yeah. and I you know, bought him a drink. He took me back to his flat. We had a wonderful night, just gentle and tender and pleasant and affectionate. And in the morning he said, uh, so what do you say your name was? Yeah, it's perfect. And he had no idea what I did for a living or who I was out there in the world. He didn't know what I did. And again, that's that's that that must have been hugely rewarding for you because well, because because the you as a teen as the nervous awkward teen is who who pulled that night essentially not Tom Robinson on stage not the the Tom Robinson you tried to escape by becoming that person on stage was the one that went out there and pulled this this handsome young man you know yeah that was just yeah. so rewarding so gratifying so enormously touching to have been liked for my own sake and we we spent a weekend together up there yeah. and sharing time going up for meals doing things and he came to see me off on the train and cried on the platform and yeah. it was just wow <laughs> yeah in a time of turbulence and uncertainty the band breaking up uh, horrible reviews in the press yeah. uh, managers pressurizing you to go to america what are you going to do next publishers saying when we're going to have some new songs yeah. uh, agents saying you need to go and do some gigs in japan and yeah all this stuff that kind this of little episode real life personal a reaffirmation of, of, of your worth. As a human being. As a human being, hugely yep. important. Because, again, it's tough at times like that because there's going to be a level of people who are telling you how great you are who you don't really... You can't necessarily trust. There's going to be a level of people telling you how awful you are who, again, you can't necessarily trust, you know. So to have that moment of purity in that way of this is just me, then that must have been, yeah, I can understand. That must, that must have meant the world. So, yeah. Now, you said that thing of how much... This is a large amount of money for this year, but if you spread it over three years, yep. how much is that worth? Yep. Well, the tax people sort of did that. Yeah. Because we got a lot of money from the first album. We uh -huh. spent most of it making the second album. Yeah. We didn't make very much money from the second album, and I invested everything I'd made from that into a band called Sector 27, yeah. which didn't sell any copies at all. And then the tax man came knocking and said... Um, you know all that money you had? Where's our bit? Yeah. And at that point, I had nothing. Yeah. My management company, I'd, I'd by then left uh, Steve O'Rourke and Tony yeah. Howard, the Pink Floyd managers. The new managers I'd gone to had gone bankrupt. The accountants oh, who were meant to be looking after me hadn't actually kept proper records for the last six years. We'd been paying them a fortune, but they hadn't kept proper books. That's outrageous. And uh, there was nothing to be done. Yeah. But forgive me for telling you an anecdote that I've told a million times okay, before, but your listeners might not know yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, this no, is sure, a, just, just a great little moment like yeah. the one we just dis yeah, yeah. discussed. I had to sell off everything. Okay. I had to sell everything that was, wasn't nailed down just to even kind of pay the short-term debts, let alone the sort of 80,000 yeah. quid owing in VAT and yeah, what, what yeah, have you. Yeah. Um, 
so I was selling off the last of the TRB flight cases and bits of oh, yeah. equipment out of my garage. And these two guys in combat fatigues with long dreadlocks and um, kind of Barbadian accents came to look over the stuff, kind of looking it over with rather yeah. disdainfully and yeah. uh, kissing their teeth. And uh, yeah. one of them looked at the TRB logo on the side of the uh, one of the flight cases and said, uh, yeah, Tom Robinson said, what happened to him? <laughs> Wow. And I said, well, actually, I this, am Tom Robinson. Yeah. And this guy said, oh, well, you know, divest yourself of all this. You don't need this. You'll come back. And when you do, you'll be able to buy whatever you need then. You yeah. know, you don't need all this shit. You'll come back. Don't you worry. I said, well, sure. Look at Eddie Grant. He said, I am Eddie Grant. <laughs> Perfect. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I've dined out on that story a thousand times, but it still makes me chuckle. Even though it really happened, sometimes beautiful. Sometimes I think I made it up, but no, it it did actually happen. It reminds me a little bit. And again, I've told it's not my own story, but there's a podcast I like called The Nerdist, and Tom Hanks was on that. And uh, obviously, amazing. Everyone loves Tom Hanks. You can't not love Tom. And he was saying when they were asking of how do you keep things in check when you, you know they were talking of his year where he had big and like, like huge film after huge film. Um, and he said he realised quite early on, you know, you wake up one day and all of a sudden you're MC Hammer. You know, it's, it, it, the world's crazy. You're MC Hammer, but what you've got to remember is next year you could be MC Hammer. And again, it's just the perfect s- summation of of, of realising the ups and downs of these of the of the entertainment industry. I guess so. So true. Well, so you had to I, to I, get I, rid of everything. And again, just a little t- a tip to bands here. Um, again, we were lucky early on that we got a good accountant who made a business account and took you know so you're only paying your business tax or whatever and then we take a yearly wage and things like that so it's spread out over years right because again it's an industry where you could earn a shitload one year and not much the next year but still you'll have to pay the tax on that huge amount which isn't fair if it's spread out over numerous years the tax man doesn't then go oh you didn't earn much next year so have some of this back that's not so again the way i guess people seem to counter that now is that having the business account and spreading it out and 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 paying dividends and small amounts and and avoid just avoiding being stung in that way and looking at that security but so many people particularly at that point as the record industry was kind of having its first few big big booms that first moment of wow this is this is never ending Hmm. this is this will carry on forever. No, not so much. Not so much. Yeah. We were talking when you came in in 2010 to talk to, to on my Six Music show. Yeah. We talked about Billy Bragg a bit. Yes. Now, he did it a really interesting way because he came very grassroots playing yeah. um, anywhere that would have him. His first album, Again, he recorded for 90 quid, 70 yeah. quid, I think. And he was one, as, as you were saying about Joe Strummer watching the pistols, I remember hearing uh, Billy t- tell stories of how he went and saw the clash at a rally and was like this is what i need to do this is this is it so yeah yeah. absolutely and his first album he just recorded it straight to stereo with him and his electric guitar uh 70 quid to to record it on the basis that if your record costs nothing to make every single copy sold is profit yeah yeah yeah. and he had peter jenner managing him who instigated that yeah. and the other thing that jenna did for him is he paid him 50 quid a week billy only drew 50 quid a week all through that early period of success yeah. and put the rest in a deposit account yeah and 
all the money he was earning, he never saw it, he never touched it, he still wore the same jeans, it's still brilliant. caught the same buses, he refused to be touched by it, he kept himself on a low wage, yeah. living the same old Billy Bragg life. It's, it's bizarre, because not even knowing that, again... When me and Dan first came up and had all this exposure and all this, we started to pay ourselves a monthly wage that was a fraction more than I was earning at HMV. And that's what we paid for this time. And again, it's tough because because your mates will see merch flying out or or gigs selling out and assume you're rolling in, in money. It's like, I'm... I'm skint this month b- b- because I've spent my my, my small amount. I'm, I pay myself each month, so yeah, yeah. It's 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 it's, it's the wise way to do it, I guess. And but it's not it's not it's not that easy, it's and not, and not everyone hears that at the time. So, so 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 what kind of came after that? You had I had to flee the country. Why, I why? packed all my remaining possessions, basically my uh, four track cassette porter studio, uh, a guitar. Yeah. Um, Roland Space Echo into the back of uh, an Austin A40, which I'd uh, bought for thirty quid. Yeah. Drove it on the ha- on the f- ferry to Hamburg and went and lived in Hamburg on a friend's floor for six, six months. Wow! Um, because, like I say, if you owe eighty thousand quid in VAT, that's not that's not Her Majesty's Inspector of revenues that's customs and excise yeah and they have extraordinary powers literally they're called extraordinary powers to levy distress on your goods and chattels which means the customs could have turned up at my front door with a a a warrant and seized the house yeah so i had this little two up two down flat um a a muse flat in hammersmith that would later have a studio downstairs and two rooms upstairs to live in yeah and because I was desperate to keep that as my one bit of security, and even that wouldn't have paid the debts, yeah, it was only yeah, worth yeah. 20 grand at yeah. the time, um, I, I fled the country so they couldn't serve the order on me. Wow. Um, Again, that must have been insane to go from the, 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 the lavishness of celebrity to literally fleeing the country. Yeah. You know, that's 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 a that's a huge that's a huge that's a huge hill to yeah. to fall down, I guess, in that way. Yeah. So, but, so what but, did you do in, well, while when I was you found yourself Ham- out there? While I was in Hamburg, I, I made an album on eight track yeah. uh, called uh, North by Northwest, which kind of got me back in the game right. and got some decent reviews. And I, um, most notably, I, I was staying with a um, a friend there who was a, a record company. Um, promotion man yeah. and I'd met him on while on EMI yeah so he put me up refused to take any rent Amazing. And, and everything and gave me a spare room and after dinner one night I had a kind of transcendent psychedelic experience yeah. uh, on this on this spliff um, <laughs> which I was completely off my tits I mean <laughs> more than I'd ever ever been yeah and I climbed into the Austin A40 and drove it wildly in that state across Hamburg to the gay sauna on the far side of town. Right. (laughs) Spent an evening there, then somehow, still completely high, drove the car back, stumbled into my bedroom, (laughs) sat down with a pad and paper and wrote eight pages of scribble, which began with the words, only the very young and the very beautiful can be so aloof, hanging out with the boys, all swagger and poise. 
And that stream of consciousness ramble just came from a, a place I have no idea where emotionally, yeah. but it was the cumulative effect of severe drugs yeah. and um, a traumatic night in a gay, yeah. gay sauna being rejected. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, whatever that is, that isn't going to be my next single. Yeah, yeah, yeah surely not. <laughs> um, but it wouldn't go away, that, that, yeah. that, that ramble. I kept, kept coming back to those words, trying to make them scan and rhyme and yeah. turn them into... In the end, I arrived, in short, with a song called War Baby, which I touted round uh, my record, German record company, dropped me because of that record. Wow. Uh, saying it's hardly another two, four, six, eight, motivate Tom. Yeah. Um, the, they signed the paper, letting me out on the day it entered the UK charts. Amazing. So, uh, and all the Amazing. UK record companies turned it down, but we put it out on an independent label. It got to number six, and then promptly stalled oh, wow. because we ran out of stock. Yeah, you know, because you're running your own record company, you'd, yeah, you'd yeah, no yeah, idea yeah, about yeah. this stuff. There's only so, s- so much that can be. I know. So, so it's amazing. But anyway, all the record companies called up within within three or four days, going, "Ah, always knew you'd do it, Tom. Always knew you'd come back. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you fancy dinner? Yeah, <laughs> we must do lunch. Yeah, all that yeah. all that nonsense. But on the back of that, while War Baby was still in the chart, I was invited round to Virgin Records. Yeah, um, to have a chat with. Uh, I think Simon Draper, some of the people there anyway, yeah. and they were having their international conference that morning. Right. And I was introduced, they played the record, and all these international representatives, uh, the Swedish guy said, ah, oh, there's uh, a gr- this is a great single, we have a great TV show, we can get you on that one if you want to come out next Tuesday, we can uh, bring put, put you onto that. And the, and the German guy was saying, oh yes, and then you could come down to Munich, and we, we also have a very important radio live programme, you can put a band together and play wow. on that tomorrow um, at the end of next week. And I went away, and I went home, and I thought, do I actually want to get back on that carousel yeah. of all the stuff that drove me mad led to pretty much another nervous breakdown yeah, yeah. Um, and financial ruin? Yeah. Or do I want to have a nice life? And I never called them back. Amazing. And I had a chance to sign to Virgin Records, but it would have meant going back into the fray and, and all that kind of promotional and rock in, and roll and nonsense. In, in such a similar way of of you essentially, and I'm sure there was loads of other goods, but they were doing this essentially because of one song. Yeah. And and having, as you said there, people always comparing everything to 246, six, eight, where after that is like, well, this is, this is the, this, this is happening again. We're going to put, go on TV and everything. I've just written one song here. There's, yeah, there wasn't an album. Knowing what's either. next, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, so you walked away from it at, the, at yeah. that point. And I've, wa- I've, I've skipped over the nervous breakdown because right. at 30, when the, when the tax people started coming around and the reviews had got really bad yeah. and this personal isolation had got really bad, I had got to the stage where I was leaving the door locked at the flat and staying indoors for three or four days at a time, yeah. not answering the phone, yeah. um, and going to the doctor and complaining about fictitious back pain so as to get soluble distal G6 to stockpile in my cupboard yeah. uh, after a friend had successfully uh, topped himself using those. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the the, the th- th- therapeutic 
benefits of being of of getting in the public eye and receiving praise for someone that's previously felt lonely previously felt worthless is huge but then when that turns around and you're in the public eye and you're receiving heightened hate hate um or 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 even just indifference it's it's all the louder i'd imagine and and all the more painful and dangerous very much so i i totally agree with that and so I really was on course for a second and perhaps successful suicide attempt yeah. at that at that point. And every now and again, I'd kind of pull back from the brink and I'd sort of go out and socialise and yeah. things would get better for a bit. And then I'd get another night when it all got really dark. And I realised that sooner or later, those pills in the cupboard were going to get used. Yeah. And then I read, I happened to read the Joe Orton biography, Prick Up Your Ears. Right. Um, John Lahr wrote that. Yeah. And <clears throat> the thing that struck me immediately reading it was it was clear that Kenneth Halliwell, his lover, was going to kill Joe Orton. Right. That's what happened. He murdered yeah. him wow. and then killed himself. That, that, wow. Yeah, it yeah. was prefigured at least five years before it happened. They yeah. even wrote a play together about two lovers where one of them gets jealous of the other and kills him. Wow. You know, it was that clear. And in his diaries, Joe Orton kept writing, I must leave Kenneth. I really must. He's not good for me. Yeah. And yet he didn't. Yeah. So he just let it slide, let it slide, even though it's coming up on the horizon, it was yeah, looming, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. obvious what was coming. And it couldn't have been more obvious what was, was coming for me yeah. at that point. Yeah. And at that point, I just put the book down, flushed all the dr- drugs I was going to say, the fact that you're stockpiling, the fact that you're yeah. preparing, it's... it's I, I think on all these things, there's so many points along most journeys where you can m- make a choice to, to step away from this. Um, and again, I'm not only only talking about a, d- a depression here. It's always annoyed me um, when people... Um, will say oh I you know I cheated I was drunk it's like but you started the night at home and then you went out somewhere on your own and got drunk and surrounded yourself with people where there could be potential temptations like, there's so many points along that route where you can step away from that. it's just, it's a similar thing there if, if you're aware that your depression is getting stronger um it's an interesting one because I think it, it's such a confusing thing because I've I've had this um numerous times and and never quite been able to understand it or get my head around it but the uh, you know, a crippling l- loneliness, only overpowered by the complete lack of desire to s- socialise with anyone at, at all. So, do you know, what I mean, having that, you're feeling so alone. But I really, you know, if someone rung me up and said, "Oh, we're going to the pub," I'd be like, oh, "I don't really fancy that." Actually, <laughs> showing such a weird um, p- 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 paradox in many ways that you're feeling that need to to socialise more, but also don't particularly fancy it kind of thing so it's yeah it's a weird thing so it must have been a huge deal to then to be reading this and see something so obvious on the cards and realize that in your own life and go right i need to to step away from this the 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 hole i'm I'm burying myself in at the moment yeah i I did pick up the phone i called my manager i said colin for fuck's sake find me a shrink Right, yeah. I don't care what discipline, I don't care what school of therapy, whatever it is, I'm going to take it and I'm going to follow it, I'm going to see it through. And in 1980, at the age of 30, I started seeing uh, a therapist for kind of basically Freudian-based psychotherapy, but with modern twist, um, up in Crouch End once or twice a week. Yeah. And I kept it up for 10 years. 
Yeah. And from age 30 to age 40, I was in therapy, and it saved my life again. In the same yeah. way that Mr. Lyrewood and Finchter Manor had saved it in my teens, in my 30s, I was brought from a situation where... At age 30, I couldn't even form a relationship with a cat. Yeah, yeah. At age 40, my first child was born. Amazing. And that was the journey that I made in terms of emotional readiness to engage again, with the wider I mean, world. Just hearing the, all of this story so far, it's so, re, it's so clear to anyone listening that these might not be scenarios and things that you can handle on your own. Yet, it would have taken you so long to realise it's acceptable to need help, to need guidance, to, to need therapy, to need someone to, to help you along here. And it's such a bizarre thing with our society. And again, I mention it all the time, but it never it used to be that way. You used to have shaman or elders or people in general who would give you guidance and help. That's something we seem to have, have lost as we've evolved in, a, in a, a more broad society, but we've not really replaced. We've mm. We've lost the idea of a, of a shaman or the elders, but we've not really gone, well, what was their actual function? It was maybe to give guidance, maybe to help people who kind of feel a bit lost. Again, the realisation when you get to a certain age that, that grown-ups aren't a real thing, that they're us and they're as clueless as everyone else. Like you kind of as a kid think, oh, our parents understand everything. And then you get to a certain age and go, so when am I, is there going to be a click that I suddenly understand how to exist? So, yeah. It's a, it's a bizarre thing. So, but how was that then? We need to talk about your 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 wife and children um, at that point. What? How did this all come about? What was the therapy something that that made you more open to such things, or was it just an out of the blue? I think, looking back on interviews that I did in the seventies, mm -hmm. I had always been potentially bisexual. Yeah. So, you know, not very bisexual. I've never been very bisexual, yeah. to be honest. If I see a hundred attractive women, one after the other, it'll be number 98 yeah. that I fancy. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, we'll fancy, like, madly. Yeah. yeah. But it's a, quite a low number. Whereas, Again, I, whereas the, I like men. I you can know. imagine that. It, it will be a low number, but the intensity will be that much higher because it's has to be to break that norm. Exactly you know so. I mean, exactly you know? so. Whereas men, I like men. Yeah. Men are fabulous. They're just <laughs> wonderful, you know. Yeah. E even with no sexual interest in them, I just think men are so interesting, so attractive. They do such yeah. great things. There's, men get a bad press, you yeah. know. Yeah, they do. We do they get do. a bad press yeah. as a species. And I think men are endlessly fascinating, endlessly interesting and attractive. And I... You know, love meeting yeah, yeah. new people. So, on the whole, if I'm going to be attracted to somebody, it's probably it's going to be like somebody my odds on. You know, it's going to be. A and guy. In, in terms of the, you know, love affairs that I've had over the years, there's only been like two with women, yeah, yeah, uh, ever, and the one that was the one could have been a man could have been a woman turned out to be a woman yeah but it's as simple as that yeah so and i don't it can think be, it, it's beautiful that it is as simple as that and it can be as simple as that it doesn't have to be this complex so why was it it was just a woman that was the one that i met that was the one that i was drawn to and in, in this moment you know and when you meet the person you want to spend the rest of your life with a you know yeah you know yeah 
that's the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. And B, you can't worry about the technicalities of, is this the right gender? Yeah, is is yeah. this appropriate? Is yeah. the hell with all that? What, what are people going to think? I don't care what people think. Yeah. I've met the person for me. And again, it's the beautiful thing of if there is ever a time where a sexuality is a removed label, then that's that's far more, more yeah, it'd be a wonderful thing to not have that because, again, there will be thousands upon thousands of people on a daily basis who are fighting an internal ba- battle because of that because they're suddenly going, shit, I've just met, I think, I think I've met the person I want to spend the rest of my life with, but they're of the same sex or again they're of, of the opposite sex and I thought they were, were meant to be you know that's it's so ridiculous to have that unnecessary conflict thrown yeah. in there the other thing about being gay is it's so much more than who you sleep with yeah. there's a whole gay mindset there's mm-hmm. a gay lifestyle a gay approach to life you know most of the people that I've socialised with up to that point and long after that point yeah. have been gay yeah um, I mean it's fascinating you said that you met your wife at was it a, a gay, gay switchboard a benefit gay switchboard benefit yeah so again the, I'd imagine neither of you were expecting to meet your future no and <laughs> in, and in fact in that manner there was actually quite a big gap yeah between us first meeting and us becoming an item yeah you know um, so we were just in, in the same group of friends for a while and suddenly forest fire kind of caught on and so about three or four years years, three years after first meeting it really took off and uh, the thing was I didn't want to be a hypocrite and sing Glad to be Gay on stage each night and then go home to my female partner um, as a dirty little secret yeah so i mean i'd imagine particularly after the 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 being called out in the past for your mockney accent or anything like that to suddenly feel that another huge part of your sound and your and your identity could in any way be perceived to be fake and inaccurate right absolutely so um you know, people used to speculate about the wife and kids yeah. 10 years before I even remotely had any chance of having either. Yeah. Um, if, if, if Tom Robinson's wife hadn't existed, it would have been necessary to invent her yeah. in, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. tittle-tattle. Yeah. Um, so, actually, well... Where were we? Um, yeah, or just you, 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 you'd oh, yeah. met and you'd had to come to terms with this, and then oh yeah, yeah. I'm saying about the game last... over it. <laughs> you know, come out as not out. I, I was yeah. Here we go. I was I was going <laughs> to say I didn't want I didn't want to be singing "Glad to Be Gay" on stage course, every yes. night and then going home secretly to my female yeah. partner like it was a dirty little secret. Yeah. So. I did an interview with Capital Gay and I did an interview with the Pink Paper in which, in the course of which I said, oh, by the way, I'm living with a woman at the moment. Yeah. And the journalist went, well, you know, well, why are you telling me this? So what? Yeah. Big deal. You yeah. know, we, all, we all have flings, yeah. you know, yeah. more things in heaven and earth. So it wasn't a big deal for either of those papers, That's although both, both of them reported it. Yeah. But then, 12 months later, the Sunday People found out. Right. And for them, it was a big deal. Yeah, it was huge. They huge they news. called my manager and said, we want to do an interview with Tom about his sexuality. Yeah. And the manager said, fuck off. 
so they <laughs> then Good. they then came to my house and rang the doorbell and shouted through the letterbox, Tom, we want to interview you about your sexuality. I said, fuck off. <laughs> they waited behind a dustbin until my partner arrived home oh, from wow. work and leapt out and snapped a picture of her in her crash helmet and said, well, can we interview you about your sexuality? And she said, fuck off. So they tracked my dad got down. got the party on, line down, they tracked, so that's, that's They tracked down my dad in holiday in France and said, can no. we interview you about your son's sexuality? He told them to fuck off. <laughs> so that Sunday I was in the newsagents and I saw a copy of the Sunday People yeah. and it actually had on the front inside exclusive with Tom Robinson. I went, What? So I had to buy a copy. Yeah. I mean, it went against the grain, but yeah. I did have to buy a copy. And there was a centre page colour spread. Um, and, and the headline, I kid you not, said, Britain's number one gay in love with girl biker. My passion for blonde by Rocker Robinson. And... They'd made the whole thing up. Yeah, I mean... They made up the quotes. A friend says, Tom's so glad not to be gay anymore. He's so much happier now. Yeah. He's, he says he's really in love with well, Sue. Was there a sense of pride of being declared Britain's number one gay? Well, I, <laughs> in, I just, in that moment of shock, going, well, it, actually, it's, still, it's, 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 it's nice to be number one. <laughs> you know? it, do you know, the, the thing I wished reading that was, I wished that somebody else had told all the other gays that I was <laughs> number one. yeah. <laughs> I wish this had been announced a few years yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, really. That would have, in, in the context. I could have reaped the benefits. But I suppose it was the shortest tabloidese shorthand yeah, they, yeah. Could, they could use to uh, say somebody famously homosexual yeah, yeah, is, yeah. is having this affair. Wow. And all they knew about Sue was uh, the, that she was a motorcyclist. So she, she had a bike girl, girl when biker. they tried to get her. Oh, girl geez. biker. So, um, yeah, then that became a, a, a whole thing once they get your hooks, their hooks into you. And, and, you and how was party. that? Because was that at a point you'd actively, you'd stepped away from music at this point anyway, right? Or was, no, am I getting not the... really. This is late 80s. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, no, I was still struggling away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I had no idea that it, I was still a tabloid-worthy story at that yeah, time. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was a long time since the last hit. Um, yeah. That caused quite a lot of ill feeling. And then when our first child was born, um, they again got hold of the story and and got in and said, we want to come and take pictures of your baby. And we said, are you crazy? No. And they said, well, we've got a story about you you're not going to like and we're going to run it this Sunday unless you let us come and take pictures of your baby. And we went went to a... um, we went to a PR expert and said, look, what can we do about this? And I said, there's nothing you can do. Until they've published, you can't sue them yeah. for anything. And they'll be careful enough not to say anything that's actually actively untrue. They'll say, yeah. a friend said, and you won't be able to prove that a friend didn't say it. Yeah. Um, the only thing you can do is take your own baby pictures and go public with it the day before they're due to publish. Yeah. And spike the story. So there's a t- complete non-story for the Sunday people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we did. We gave... We, Jill Fermanovsky, bless her, who has taken the pictures for the new album, yeah, came and took pictures of me and my wife and the baby, and we wrote a press release and put it out there. 
and they all ran with it. The Sun ran with it. Yeah. The Mirror ran with it. You know, inevitable glad to be dad headlines, but yeah. broadly sympathetic. Yeah, you know, yeah. saying again. I guess that's just it's taking that control back and again and removing any sh- any sh- shame again any f- any fear you had initially of of coming out as having a female partner now and them going oh yeah, yeah. okay so it's that thing of of, of actively going out and going this is beautiful or because they were beautiful photos this is a good thing this isn't something I'm, i want to be scared about or nervous about or worried about this this is something i want to celebrate you know we didn't have a choice of course yeah and, exactly yeah yeah and all our gay friends were going why are you talking to the sun? Of yeah, all of the papers, yeah, yeah, yeah. all the things they've written about AIDS in the last yeah. five years, why yeah. are you giving the sun exclusive pictures of your baby? Yeah, that must have been... Tough. What are you dreaming of, you know? And, of course, we had no platform with which to reply to that. Yeah. So there we were suddenly, it seemed, sending out press releases and photos and boasting about yeah. the changed sexuality. The when it was v- domestic, was very at the much, height uh, yeah. of the AIDS crisis. So yeah, yeah I guess so. And not, again, there's not the full story isn't there. You, I, I can completely understand their re- the, the 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 reaction of the of the gay scene there. I can also know, knowing that this was a, a reaction to what, to basically threats and blackmail. Mm. Understand what you guys had to do for the the sake of your family. We had to do it. Ever since then, I mean, we've never mentioned any of the family by name. Yeah. Um, never published any photos of any of the family yeah. publicly on any social media. You know, yeah. my wife has a, an Instagram account, but uh, she never does selfies on it. Yeah, yeah. And if she's in one of my pictures, I always crop it so she's not yeah. not in there. Because you just want to preserve... Just take that privacy back. Take that privacy way. back. And my kids never asked to be famous. Yeah. Or to be written about or to be yeah. talked about. So we've done our damnedest to keep their lives private and yeah. their profiles private and uh, you know what they do now they're grown up that's yeah yeah that's, that's their business that's, that's it, completely on their but they've got that choice again it's 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 their own choice there yeah well i mean we're getting we're going on and on this is becoming a wonderful bumper edition but we do need to talk about radio because <laughs> yeah. it's such a key part um you're one of i'd imagine a very few people to have of 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 worked on Every BBC station, right? You've gone on one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, all yeah. the way through. So how did you decide that broadcasting was your your calling when you decided very much that despite the um, the, the the offers from labels or whatever that you, you needed to walk away from music? Well, it, the two ran side by side for a fair while in yeah. the... In the mid-80s, a BBC World Service producer came to see me play a, a show and she liked the bits between the songs yeah, yeah. more than the songs. Yeah. And she thought, that's a great voice for radio. So mm. she approached me and said, would you like your own little series on the BBC World Service? So I had this series called New Waves on the Short Wave, uh, just 15-minute shows once a week uh, where I'd play some new records yeah. each week. So... Having done that, I got offered a gig depping for Janice Long on Radio 1. Right. While she was uh, first in Japan and then when she took uh, maternity leave. Yeah. So I I did a bit of depping on Radio 1. That was an eye-opener. Yeah. Being on the other side of the world, suddenly finding that 
at Radio 1, the producers ran the show. Yeah. The music wasn't chosen by the DJs, it was chosen by the producers. Yeah, again, the huge power of the, of, of the, peop- of the unnamed people essentially behind the scenes there is, yeah. particularly in daytime. I mean, I'd say n- not so much the later you get into the evening, and it's why people like John Peel were rightfully John Peel. Yeah. But, yeah, particularly in the daytime element, how much of that is is by producer and committee essentially rather than the the voice you're hearing presenting these things exactly so so then early 90s i then started getting work on radio four um pick of the week things like and i got my own series on radio four called the locker room which was about the one thing that i was really really interested in men (laughs) so it was it was a kind of men's answer to women's women's hour and and they've they've got the men's room now on on five live but it's not it's not the same kind of approach it was a magazine program on a good slot too it was like on early on a saturday evening uh once a week and discussions um little it interview pieces, opinion pieces. We had Jarvis Cocker, we had Will Self doing kind of Brilliant. little essays and things yeah. in there. And tried to take a a take on it that was both kind of humorous and deft and light in touch, but also dealing with things like being a, a sperm donor or impotence yeah. or female on male violence, which yep. is a, an aspect of domestic violence that just doesn't get discussed. Hugely uncovered and, yeah, and people, hugely undiscussed. And, and the shaming for, for the men concerned be, who've been beaten up by yeah. female partners. The, 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 the lack of, um, of, of respect it gets is it's something I was discussing on, t- on Twitter the other day. It's always struck me as bizarre. The John Wayne Bobbitt story, how that I remember at school that was a hilarious story, and even now in the media, I was watching a a, a, a history of the nineties or something thing the other day, and there was kind of laughing at it. And my argument is always, if that was a man who found out his wife was cheating and he cut off her her genitalia and threw it out the window of a, it's like that would be one of the most haunting and tragic and disgusting stories. Mm imaginable but because it was female or male it was seen as a, oh there you go and it was kind of a this big ongoing joke and tv shows and and we're talking about it and find this hilarious thing and it's that that's kind of that's a domestic violence story essentially and it's hilarious so it, it only goes to show how the smaller or or, or sorry not smaller the, the less famous domestic violence situations uh, are obviously not going to be taken as seriously and given as much attention than they they clearly should. Uh, I guess I think you know both of us would would want to mark here the fact that male on female domestic violence is such a horrific and horrifically 100%, widespread thing yeah. that you know rightfully that gets talked about and probably yep. still needs to be talked about more even now and it's absolutely yep. I mean, unacceptable a, 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 again i'm a, a huge there's 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 certain things i believe that get lost in the equality debate and obviously i'm hugely in favor of equality but there's there's still the fact that men and women are different physically and genetically there is a difference so yeah c- c- completely right that the 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 heightened physical risk i guess of male on female domestic violence it justifies it getting as much attention as possible but that it's it's that stupid thing and and we had this a lot when um a caitlin jenner um 
appeared recently gloriously to much um press and there was a lot of people saying when everyone was saying how brave she is they're saying well our soldiers are brave so that doesn't mean that she's not though there there doesn't have to be this competition of well it should be either a a female or male or male or on female uh, that gets the attention if you know i mean there's they should one might deserve more but that doesn't mean that they should be ignored i don't want to see more i I don't want to see stories of bravery of soldiers instead of stories of caitlin's bravery i want to hear both let's have both i want to have time for both of them i don't it it doesn't have to be one or the other or a competition for who's the most brave or 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 what is the most worthy cause there's there's a lot of worthy causes so yeah definitely on that Totally. So that, that was the locker room, yeah. um, you know, covering a wide variety. So I ran for six series yeah. um, into into the nineties. I started getting documentary gigs where I'd be kind of writing and yeah. compiling a documentary about a, a particular subject. So that's when I went and did the gay games. I was going to say in 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 ninety seven, wasn't it? You won the a, a Sony Award for for for. For one of your documentaries, and again, it was again a great moment to have that voice to be able to speak out. And that—that um, that was the "You've Got to Hide Your Love yeah, Away," yeah. which was taken after the John Lennon song yeah, that yeah, so yeah, moved yeah. me back in the day. Uh, it was a history of gay music up to David Bowie, basically, yeah. and it was on uh, GLR as it then was, BBC London as it now is. Yeah. Um, so that was a, a great landmark moment in. 97 to have my hand shaken by the director general of the BBC for making a program about gay music. Yeah. 20 years after the BBC had had banned my gay songs. Amazing. So that was was a really sweet, nice moment. Yeah, I can imagine. So bit by bit over the years, I've um, been offered... Uh, programs on different stations. I've did a series of documentaries uh, for Radio 3 where we were looking at icons. Uh, so famous classical musicians would then tell me about the classical musicians they considered iconic in their performances. Right. And I was, although I know next to nothing about classical music, my ignorance was my, um, was my chief weapon. Yeah. So I'd say, look... I don't understand why opera singers do this wobbly vibrato thing, but what makes a really great opera singer versus just an ordinary one? Can you explain to me this difference, why this person you've chosen is so brilliant? And then they'd illustrate it with clips of music. It's it's great. It's what Louis Theroux does so so well. It's what I like doing on here, and I always refer to it as playing the Alan Davis role on on, on QI. They all joke at Alan being the idiot. Alan's incredibly intelligent, um, but he plays the role of the rest of us sitting at home who might not be on the same level as Stephen Fry and John Sargent and all these other people. So he gets to be the one that makes them explain it to the layman. And again, that's 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 great. That's what you need at points. It's mm-hmm. it, it helps everyone along. Rather than everyone having this conversation above everyone else, it brings everyone into it. It goes, here's, here's why they do that with their voices. <laughs> and here's what makes them good. Exactly. And I think now we get into the noughties, yeah. um, you get the tragic death of John Peel in 2004 and as well as all the work that we know him for with music he did have this show on Saturday mornings on Radio 4 Home Truths which very heavily divided people people like John Walters hated it um, considered it too folksy other people 
it was compulsive listening yeah. every week. And for yeah. me, I was one of the compulsive listeners. Yeah. I loved the program. I loved its format. I loved the interviewing of ordinary people about their ordinary lives and things that had happened to them, which are fascinating. Yeah. People used to draw these stories out of people yeah. so brilliantly. And um, I was a contributor to Home Truths, doing little essay pieces from here and there. Yeah. And after he died, uh, I had the privilege of re- of being one of the team of replacement presenters who stepped in to present that show yeah. um, wow. for, while it lasted. I did 12 episodes of Home Truths uh, as, as presenter, and it was endlessly interesting. I loved yeah. doing that. And then the, the, the culmination of it was a year on from John's death that Home Truths did a special from Peel Acres where I went back with the producer and met the family, talked to them about what John had been like, saw around the record collection. Wow. Yeah. And we did a one-hour special, and it was done by BBC Audio, did it actually as a... That's a, amazing. ..as a special CD that you I mean, get. that must have meant the world to be... to get to... to, to it was to a huge, do that, yeah. huge, huge privilege. Yeah. You know. And then later, when I had my shows on Six Music, um, I actually asked Tom Ravenscroft to come and uh, do a, a guest hosting show with his brother, Will. Yeah. Uh, we got them to curate a show for us. Yeah. Um, which was really interesting, getting the kind of Peel Juniors. Yeah. But then, of course, Tom's was already on on his way to being a considerable broadcaster in his own right. Yeah, 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 so then when I had to go on holiday, he sat in on my show, and those were the first shows he did for Six Music. So oh, wow. I'm really pleased that... I helped at least sow the, sow the seed yeah. in the minds of management that Tom would be a good broadcaster for yeah. this station because he's just a, one of the main assets now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so let's let's talk about the importance of, of Six Music at the moment with the way so much is changing. Um, there's a lot of talk, obviously, of the changes at XFM recently and it becoming this male, male-dominated um, station. And, uh, you know, there's so much... R- R- Radio 1 love it or hate it has to be ever evolving so many people will go oh I can't listen to Radio 1 now it's gone all this genre or that genre it's like that normally tells a lot about your birth certificate it normally says you've got to a certain age where the the, the music has changed you you now have to move on to an, another genre whereas six seems to just just have that broadness in embracing all types of music and all types of shows. Um, and I genuinely feel when there was the campaign to save Six Music, that that felt like a massive turnaround for it. it. It seemed to... I mean, I know it wasn't, but that could have been the best market employee ever because I think it made so many more people aware of Six Music because those who listened fought so passionately to save it. It made so many more people go... I should give this a look and, and pay attention. And more people who previously listened but didn't always listen suddenly kind of have sat up and got involved. It was even more important than that because yeah. management didn't know what they got. Yeah, yeah. Up until the attempt to close it, management had been trying, putting comedians on yeah. uh, hosting shows, people like George Lamb coming in to do the yeah. morning show yeah. in the hope of broadening our demographic and increasing yeah. its appeal completely missing yeah. the reason Six Music existed. They thought exactly, Gideon you know. Coe, who did the mid-morning show brilliantly, yeah. you know, was a bit of an embarrassment because he knew too much about music. Yeah. And 
the the thinking was somehow we need somebody more populist, less blokey, less train spottery in their yeah. musical knowledge. They thought the freak zone was something that needed to be shoved, shunted off into the middle of the night yeah. because who wants to hear these obscure records from the 60s? Yeah. They found out through the listeners in that campaign to save the station. Stuart McConey wasn't the most embarrassing thing about Six Music. He was the crown fucking yeah. jewels. Yeah. Stuart McConey is now on air seven days a week on Six Music. He's yeah. done the Radmack show all through the week in the prime slot in the afternoons. Yeah. And then he's got the Freak Zone and the Freakier Zone. Because yeah. that is what makes Six Music great, is that specialist knowledge, that mad, passionate enthusiasm yeah. for peculiar music yeah. that, that's driven by Stuart. It's, it's for me, it's, it's, it, 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 it's paralleled by John Kennedy at XFM. And again, I was so happy when I've had these reshakes that he doesn't appear to be going anywhere because, again, there's no... There's there's only one John Kennedy. And, and that was the thing with Six Music, was realising that, right, you don't need to broaden it to be more like Radio 1 or more like Capital or whatever else. The point is, no, everyone else is trying to be so similar. What makes Six Music Six Music is that it is... It's the, it's the home for everyone that isn't into that. And maybe there are millions more who want to listen to to to, to Chris Moyles or whoever else, on Radio 1, on X or wherever else. But that's not everyone. It's never going to be everyone. There's always going to be a certain amount of people who really don't want that, who really, really do not want to listen to that. Therefore you can then build a good audience by making a home for all of those people yeah. in, 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 in six, essentially, now. Yeah, and, and basically since 2010, management now realise yeah. what it is that we've got, and we've got the mission statement about, you know, the, the spirit of alternative music yeah. down the decades, uh, which, which is what informs it. So, thank goodness. I mean, the... It, it was the saving of it, but it was the saving of it because it became something new yeah. once the listeners had explained to us what we had yeah. and shown where the priorities lay. And so, I, f- I, f- I feel we do need to to to, to run off um, a bit of a list of, of Lauren Laverne, of Sean Keaveney, of Huey Morgan, of, of Guy Garvey, of so Steve many... Lamack. Steve Lamack. Steve Lamack, the legendary... Of so many people that... It, uh, imagine if they weren't on the radio. Imagine how tragic this would be, n- knowing the variation of the shows that they present. It's Keris yeah, Matthews, I'm hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, we, we should probably talk about your new record at some point. Tom. <laughs> <laughs> that should probably yeah. come up. What has drawn you back again? It feels beautiful because we've had this whole journey now where you've you've walked away from music you've 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 transitioned prior to your walking away into into radio and then becomes such a staple and master of the format so what what could possibly draw you back to 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 putting out music and having to be reviewed again which incidentally eight out of ten in uncut um four out of five in mojo the the new record seems to be being received very very well so what has drawn you back how nervous were you and how much did things like that those early reviews kind of calm you and make you go right god i'm this is i'm not gonna have to go off to germany and and (laughs) and and disappear well my big problem really is that since i've been at six i was on the founding team at six so that uh, i was 
uh, over in the research department when it was called Network Y. Wow. And we were trying out different ideas and different playlists and seeing how it could work. So I was there day one when the boss of Radio 2 walked in, Jim Moyer, and said, we've got it. We've yeah. been given the go-ahead. We've yeah, got the yeah, green light. Yeah. And, and I've been here ever since. And in that time, my musical tastes have changed so much. Yeah. You know, from the music I grew up with in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, into the noughties, suddenly sitting there as a consumer, it's like being having been a chef yeah. and suddenly getting a gig as a restaurant critic. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah, suddenly, yeah. instead of just thinking about my own kitchen own and ingredients... Your, your, your own speciality. Yeah, what I can yeah. cook up for my small, loyal band of customers. I'm eating at the very best restaurants, yeah. interviewing Tom York, Bob Geldof, yeah. Paul McCartney, you know, yeah. the people who are like specialists in what yeah. they... Brian Eno! I got yeah. four hours oh, with Brian Eno. I can't believe it's it. insane. You know, to find out what makes him tick and how it all goes. Um... Being in that position as a consumer broadens your tastes and refines your palate yeah. so much. So you go, I don't want to listen to that same old blooming blues 12-bar nonsense that I used to get off in the 60s yeah. today, yeah. rehashed without anything new added. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I actually want to listen to music that makes me sit up and take notice, and ma- yeah. shocks me, surprises me, that makes me feel alive. And... The trouble is, I only know how to make the old kind of music when I pick up a guitar, yep. C, F and G fall under my yeah, fingers. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, there was yeah. this huge gap that had been building up between the songs I had on my back burner that I knew were valid for me and yeah. an expression, but I didn't want to listen to them in that form. Yeah, yeah. And I certainly didn't want to offer them to anyone else to listen to in yeah. that form because, in a way, the noise that I made bored me. yeah. So, it was meeting the right producer. When right. I met Jerry Diver, uh, well, no, first, becoming a fan of Jerry Diver. Yeah. So, I heard the work that he did on Sam Lee's A Ground of Its Own. Yeah. Um, amazing production on that folk record that made it sound so fresh and contemporary, even though it was a centuries-old folk was its yeah. origins. Because of that, I then heard Jerry Diver's speech project where he took spoken word interviews with famous Irish folk musicians and then took the melodies of the voices in the interviews, turned them into tunes, and then vocalised those with violins. That's amazing. It's an amazing album, Jerry Diver's speech project. I can very warmly recommend that. So I was a huge fan of that, had him as a guest on the show, and then I started hearing all these other records that he produced, a Huli and Tito. the Misshaped Pearls album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his wife turns out to be Lisa Knapp, the folk singer, who I'd already had on yeah, the show, yeah. and he'd produced that album as well. So I was a huge fan of his production, but it was all within a certain genre, quite folky, yeah. uh, quite esoteric, um, quite Radio 3. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then, last year at the English Folk Expo, I saw Jerry perform with Lisa, and he had that kind of primal punk energy to the way he played the violin yeah. and the way he put, attacked the keyboards yeah. that made me think, bloody hell, 
This yeah. bloke is amazing. When Jerry Diver plays a violin, it doesn't sound like a violin. It sounds like a chainsaw. It sounds like a cloud of wasps. It sounds like anything except the, the tr- traditional yeah. jigs and reels kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Irish folky fiddle, even though that's his expertise and background. Yeah, of course. I spoke to him on Twitter a day later, and he just uh, said, uh, well, if you ever think of making another record, Tom, uh, do get in touch. And I just replied, I thought you'd never ask. Yeah. And we went into the studio not knowing what was going to happen, because I thought I was going to end up with a bit of a folky, kind of esoteric Radio 3-ish kind yeah. of album. And he's like an animal. He's like a monster yeah. when, he, when he gets in there behind his technology. Let him loose with a drum kit. I think this was the first record he produced with a full-blown drum kit. And we've got Andy Treacy, the drummer from Faithless, uh, who's, oh, wow. you know, who's, who's playing on it. Yeah. So great grooves, great rhythms. But Jerry's own special treatment on it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just imagining that, that there's this amazing guy who's been producing all this this more folksy stuff but just gagging to have the reins taken off that suddenly you've come in and gone well how about we try this he's like oh again i thought you'd never ask (laughs) kind of returning the response to you pip it all came from him yeah to be honest he you know i have this song about smoking the bible um yeah based on a a story I was told about these boys living on a farm in in rural Wales, completely broke, and when they ran out of money and Rizzlers, they used to pull pages out of the family Bible and skin up with them. And uh, took this to Jerry as a reformed ex-Catholic, loved the idea. And he said, uh, you know, I'm hearing chiptune on this, sort of 8-bit, really. Uh, do, do, do you like Prodigy? And so I was going, well, do, do what you want. Yeah. And he programmed up this bizarre electro backing for it. Amazing. And then he went, we need the, you know, we need the voice of God on this. We need to hear from God. Do you know Stephen Fry? And I went, well, not really, but I do know Ian McKellen. And he went, that'd be great. So we got... Ian McKellen to come in and be God. Amazing. And then we wanted an alternative voice, like condemning this idea, so that we didn't have it all the way of the stoners. But having somebody coming in and saying, look, you know, you shouldn't be smoking the Bible, this is all wrong. And Swami Barakas came on and did this brilliant kind of, from the Hindu point of view, you know... um, are you completely crazy? Step outside this purple haze. Harry Seacombe's in his grave. And you're blazing on these songs of praise. Man, I'm in disgust. Uh, that's sexodus, not angel dust. You know, he's, and he's a brilliant line in it. You're never going to catch me turning the guitar to a reefer. <laughs> Perfect. So Perfect. there's him and Ian McKellen and all this chiptune stuff. You wouldn't expect that from a folk producer in no. a million years. That's amazing. So, uh, yeah, we had huge fun with it. And then, to top it all, Jerry's come on the road with us and he's joined the band oh, wow. on electric violin and keyboards. And, and he's just bringing that same primal Amazing. energy to so the band. So how exciting is it to be getting on the road again in, in, in that manner? You know, not just the London and Belgian gigs, you know, I once here to be putting a full band together and, and a different a, a sound that's... That, that's new to you and you know a, a new approach in general how exciting is that after all this time totally exciting because Jerry's br- brought my music kicking and screaming into the brilliant. 21st century yeah. so he's made me the kind of record that I would play on the radio brilliant yeah as opposed to the kind of record that I know how to and, make and myself the, be- the beautiful thing there is you're going to have now a whole fan base who 
who know you as someone off the radio, you know, more than as a musician. But the beautiful fact there is they know your show and the kind of music that you play. So now, regardless of if they were even aware that you did music, you're now going to be playing music that still fits in their in their realm and in their sphere. So that's what I'm hoping. Perfect, anyway. right? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So, so, so when does the album? Oh, what's the release date? This is going out on October 21st, I think. So I think the record will have come out last week, right? Yeah, it came out on Friday the 16th. Yeah, so so out now and uh, and available now. Um, how much are you planning on, on, on touring it? And We've got a, a big 15-day tour wow. in, in the UK. Also, I'm heading over to Ireland to do a couple of kind of showcase gigs. Of course, showcase gigs in Belgium yeah, to, yeah, to get going about, there. So, yeah. And... Uh, it's just very exciting to be doing it live and uh, a complete thrill. I mean, we've done it, the whole thing, you know, is done on my own label, once again, like with War Baby. Fantastic. Um, And didn't have any money to make it, so we crowdsourced with Pledge Music. Yeah. And uh, bless them, the... uh, the audience that wanted to hear the album paid for it in advance and enabled us to make the record and hit, uh, I think, at the time of recording this, 184% of the target. Wow. That's amazing. Which means that we could then afford proper uh, full-colour sleeves for it, proper promotion for it. The whole thing has all been ploughed in there. And all the people who pledged um, and asked for their names have, are all in prime pole position on the inside of the album. Brilliant. Got a list of all their names. That's beautiful. And, and it, I mean, it's when it's done so independently, it means all the more when you're getting that reception from people like Uncut, from Mojo. Because in all rights, a lot of the time smaller labels are going to be ignored yeah. by them. So that must just yeah, that must mean the world, right? It's it certainly does. I'm you know thrilled, and you know it's it's a great honour to be invited onto distraction pieces as well because you know the list of illustrious guests that you've had now is it's, is yeah, wonderful I mean, it's company. Just, it's to great be in. fun that it just keeps going and going. And as I said, I, I tweeted. Um, although yeah, we've recorded this a month ahead, so I've mysteriously tweeted on on the way here that I've got a feeling that I'm on the way to record one of my favourite ones, and it definitely has been. So I think this is the perfect time to uh, to wrap things up. So again, where can can people keep up to date on everything on the tour, on the record, everything else on, uh, t- on Twitter or on the website? TomRobinson.com. It couldn't be simpler. Perfect. It couldn't be simpler that's perfect well thank you very much for coming on Pip a huge pleasure great honour and uh, have to have you on the radio show yes 100% always always happy to come on that so yeah thank you very much you've been listening to Scrooge Pip's there we go, man. We've we've all just been on a journey, you know. That was we've we've some stuff, some shits happened there, you know. We started this together three hours ago, possibly over three, more than three hours ago. Um, and yeah, man, that dude's an amazing guy. I, I, I if if he's if he's listened, I doubt he will. He was there, but. Big love to Tom Robinson. What a dude. Um, amazing radio show, amazing human, amazing um, a musician, just generally top guy, but how open and such a 
a story to tell. Thank you for tuning in. Um, we've got a lot of guests on their way. We've got Akala coming. We're I'm 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 lining up um, Adam Buxton, um, St- Stephen Graham. Um, and me and Jessica Hines keep dancing around each other. We can't seem to put a date together to make that happen, but that will, that will do. Same with Izzy Sooty. I need to get back to her. Um, so, yeah, a lot of great guests to come. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed th- th- this one, on the on the radio tip, I'd recommend the John Kennedy one because that was another mind-blowing one f- for me, just hearing his story. So check that out. But there's also Hugh Stevens. There's... Rob the Bank, there's Eddie Temple Morris, there's loads. It's, it's Billy Bragg. I mean, we talk about Billy Bragg on the podcast. He's 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 done distraction pieces, so check that out. Thank you for tuning in, guys. Please subscribe, please rate and review and all that kind of thing. Um, podcasts are blowing up, eh? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's dope, and I always encourage it, but there's suddenly a lot more competition, and there's a lot of big companies and big, um, yeah, industries and big big people stepping into the podcast game so i want to let you know that i appreciate all of you that continue to support this small independent podcast and keep climbing us up the charts and spreading with a a word of mouth and love and downloads and subscriptions and and all that good stuff thank you very very much for supporting um oh damn this will be the last one before the live show right if i'm if I've done done my maths right, I've recorded these a bit in advance. Um, yes, so, so if you listen to this on the day it comes out, on Saturday, I've got my club night at the book club, a We Are Lizards. It's our last one of the year. So basically, We Are Lizards is the one day each month I drink. <laughs> I mean, it's a good club night as well. I play good music. We've got amazing DJs. Push Music is one of the best DJs out there. We've got DJ Destruction. He's awesome. Stew DJs sometimes as well. Um, but yeah, we go there and we play music, but it's my it's my one night of drinking and hanging out with you guys. So I generally get a bit on it and I generally hang out with you guys and have a good chat and we have fun and it's lovely. Um, but then, even more excitingly, on Monday is the first ever, the one-off probably, or maybe possibly but definitely the first ever live distraction pieces podcast um it might have sold out by now it was close to to selling out a few weeks ago but but these things can come in 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 waves so you never know but come along to that if you if you can get a ticket it's at the leicester square theater it's going to be awesome it's going to be the first ever live distraction pieces podcast i'm very excited about it and i'm amazed that i get to do it in such a a revered location so yeah Thanks for tuning in, guys. Um, I'll see you all next week. This has been the Distraction Pieces podcast. You can follow on Twitter at Scroobius Pipio or at Distraction Cast on Facebook, facebook.com slash Scroobius Pip or facebook.com slash Distraction Pieces podcast. And shout out to the guys who run the Facebook page um, and Twitter and the YouTube page because they're killing it. They're regularly putting up these short clips that are shareable, enjoyable, kind of highlights from, uh, from individual episodes. So there might be episodes you love but you don't particularly want to go back and listen to 90 minutes off so you can go and and find these snippets enjoy them share them on your facebook page share them on twitter share, share them wherever you wish so yeah thanks for tuning in and i'll see you all next week bye <laughs>